Hello, and welcome to Health Views with Deb Friesen, MD, a podcast about health and wellness within today's healthcare landscape. I'm your host, Dr. Deb Friesen with Kaiser Permanente, and I've been working in healthcare for over 20 years. During that time, I've learned that the most powerful tool for healing is the power of listening and the value of asking the right questions. Come join me as we'll together explore timely topics that impact people, businesses, and communities. Now let's check out today's view. For today's episode, I am delighted to be talking with Dr. Trishan Thornton-Davis, an OBGYN for Kaiser Permanente in the Mid-Atlantic region. And we are going to be talking about women's health journeys, specifically around menstrual health and menopause what employers can do around this topic, and having those conversations, education, removing stigma, talking about maybe some policies and procedures to support women in the workplace. And then we're going to end with some advice about women's self-care as well. Let's get started. Thank you so much for joining me in this conversation. I'm really delighted to be talking about menstrual health with you and also really how it applies in the workplace and how to have bigger discussions If you would, just take a moment to introduce yourself. Tell us about your specialty, the different hats that you wear, and then as much as you're comfortable, share about yourself personally as well. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I think this is a really important conversation, so I'm excited to be a part of it. I'm a board-certified OBGYN. I've been practicing over 20 years. I'm currently assistant chief in OBGYN in the D.C. area. My primary office is in Silver Spring. So I'm a generalist. I do pretty much all aspects of obstetrics and gynecology. I deliver babies. I do pap smears. I do GYN surgery. So that is kind of my clinical role. I also help to manage a large department, which is exciting because we can be at the front of change in women's health within our department. I also serve as a diversity ambassador, helping to focus on diversity, equity, inclusion in our spaces and as it relates to patient care and health outcomes. So that's a little something about me. I also have three kids. The oldest is 23. I have a daughter who's 14. So that's interesting, right? (laughs) Time for girls. And then I have an 11-year-old son. So I have the mother side of me as well. So I have the professional OBGYN side, but also the mothering side of me. I love that. And what do you do for fun? Not that you have like a whole bunch of time left over, but what do you do for fun? Yeah, actually, I try. It's a part of self-care. And I've learned that through the years. It's very important. So I enjoy cycling. I started on a Peloton, basically. But through that indoor cycling, I've developed a love for outdoor cycling. So I like to outdoor cycle. And this is cycle season, even though it's a little hot here now. And we have the Canadian fire smoke. But I enjoy outdoor cycling and just trying to remain fit and active. I enjoy meditation and mindfulness and just maintaining a space for myself, despite everything that's going on around me. So I'm really into wellness and health. I'm really interested in those things. I also love traveling. So that's something that I like to do, seeing other places, other peoples, other cultures, other food. I love that. So I love that about yours. And again, thank you for joining. I think this is going to be a really great conversation. So I thought we would start really with kind of an overview of women's health as it pertains to menstrual health and kind of the different stages that we go through. You and I are probably similar in where we're at at this stage right now, but we all have to start in childhood and adolescence when that first period, menarche, but even some changes hormonally start before that. And I think that that's even part of your practice. Is that right? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, 
women, we have transitions. You know, you have the pediatric kind of adolescent gynecology that we do. And then when young girls start to enter into adulthood, so the adolescents that adolescent period to when they're young adults to when they're going through the menopausal transition until, you know, when they're in menopause completely. So each of those life phases brings a different set of challenges and transitions and hormones affect all of it. Yeah, they really do. So when you think about kind of childhood and adolescence, what are the changes happening in girls' bodies at that time? Right. So we've seen through the years that the age of first menses or menarche is a little earlier than it has been in the past. And that could be due to many reasons. So uh, in the past, I mean, the typical or average age that a girl would start having her periods or her menstrual cycle was about 11 or so, you know, 10, 11. Now we see girls as young as eight, you know, have their, have their menstrual cycle. So you can start to see differences or changes as girls enter into menarche and they start to have periods. I know, you know, my own daughter, I use her as a, an example because I'm kind of in the midst of that adolescent period she began to develop some mood symptomatology around menarche, which was different because I didn't remember having that same experience when I started to have periods. So it validated for me like, wow, you know, it's it's not uncommon to see those mood changes happen around menarche or the, the, the onset of menses for young girls because of the changes in the hormones. Well, and again, I think of the impact of seeing that first period become younger and their bodies start changing, their minds and socialization is just not where it is when things would happen a little bit later. One of the things that I know that sometimes happens is that when the periods start, they're not terrible, they're not terribly crampy, but give it a year or two and those adolescent girls will definitely have a lot more cramps. What's going on there? Yes. So I will say everyone's period is different. So one thing you can see for young girls, adolescent women, is that the period might not be regular for several years. And that's because the hypothalamus and the pituitary, that whole axis is not necessarily mature when they're younger. So it's not unusual for a young girl to start having a menstrual cycle, you know, at say age 12, and she can have irregular periods up until, you know, maybe the age of 18 or 19 until that hypothalamic pituitary axis is mature. So that's something that we see patients for often, you know, the parent brings them in because, hey, she started her periods, but they're really irregular. So that's not unusual. It's not uncommon. And it's due typically to the immaturity of the hypothalamic axis. So the other thing is that the periods may be lighter when young girls start to have a cycle. So initially, the period may be very light, may be scant, and that will typically change over time. Now, pain can vary from woman to woman. And the pain that you usually have during a period is often mediated by prostaglandins. So prostaglandins kind of mediate that crampiness. And some of those types of hormones are also released during labor. So, I would, you know, you, you compare the two, it can feel that way. Now, it varies from person to person. Some women have really bad painful periods. We call that dysmenorrhea. And it could just simply be because of prostaglandins and because of other hormonal things. There could also be signs of something else that's starting, something like endometriosis, right, which you probably identify much later, but that could be another reason. We know the word endometriosis, but, but what's actually happening in women's bodies that causes the pain of endometriosis? What does that all mean? So endometriosis is basically a condition where your endometrial lining, so the endometrial lining is basically the lining of the uterus that sheds every month when you have a period. So that lining should really be in the uterus, right? It should be confined to the uterus. It shouldn't be anywhere else. Well, when you have endometriosis, that lining 
actually implants in other places outside of the uterus. So it can implant on the ovaries, it can um, implant in the peritoneum, so inside of the abdominal cavity, if you think of it that way, it can implant there. And what happens is when you have a period, those implants that are outside of the uterus, they bleed as well. And so it can cause abdominal pain because you shouldn't have blood in your, in your peritoneum inside your abdominal cavity. So over time, that process happening month after month can lead to scarring. And long-term, women can have chronic pain. So not just during their periods, but pain all the time because of that scarring that endometriosis can cause. And endometriosis over time can also lead to problems with fertility because of the scarring. So it's basically the process of that lining that's supposed to be within the uterus actually moving to the outside of the uterus and causing symptoms that way because it shouldn't be there. So that's really, it causes pain. Usually when it first starts, it's pain, intense pain during the period. So these are cycles that not just, you know, I take a little something and I feel okay. Women who have endometriosis and endometriotic pain have horrible periods, debilitating periods that oftentimes will pull them out of work or school. And a lot of times, unfortunately, they go undiagnosed for many years. And then you find out much later in life that they have endometriosis. So it sounds like this is something that really, if you're having those terrible, painful, intense periods, don't just say that's what it's all about. This is not normal. Go and get it investigated. But even if you do get it investigated, you just alluded to the fact that it's hard to diagnose. Is that correct? I mean, is there a test that I can do to say you've got endometriosis? Can I examine a belly or a uterus and know what's going on? Yeah, that's interesting. Very interesting question because there isn't like a blood test that you can do to say, hey, yes, you have endometriosis. Endometriosis is typically a clinical diagnosis. Now, you can at times diagnose endometriosis if, for instance, you're doing a, a procedure or a, a, a surgery and you're looking into someone's abdomen and you can see endometriotic implants and you can biopsy them and take them and send them off. So you can diagnose it that way, but not everyone with endometriosis will have those obviously evident signs and, you know, not everyone's going to have surgery. So you can diagnose it that way. Sometimes on ultrasound, you can see something that they call chocolate cyst or signs that they've got these cysts on the ovaries that are kind of consistent with what we call endometriomas, which is basically endometriosis of the ovary, big, huge cyst. And when you see them surgically, they actually, when they rupture, they, it looks like chocolate. That's why they call them chocolate cysts. So sometimes you can see that on ultrasound, but not always. So really, endometriosis is something you diagnose clinically based on a woman's symptoms. And the cardinal signs of it are, you know, really horribly painful, debilitating periods that kind of take women out, out of work, out of school. And it's not something that happens from time to time. It's pretty regular. And if they suffer from it long enough, then eventually it becomes chronic pain. And then, you know, as they get into childbearing years, they may notice that they have issues with conceiving. So while we're on the subject of really heavy, painful periods, what else besides endometriosis should women be thinking about? So I like to divide that kind of into two things, heavy periods and pain. So the heavy period component, there can be all types of things that can cause you to have a heavy period. And the first thing we like to rule out are structural issues with the, with the uterus. So things like fibroids, fibroids are, we call them lyomyoma, but fibroids are tumors of the muscle of the uterus. So the uterus is a big muscle and fibroids are just growths of that muscle. Are they cancerous growths? When, when people hear tumors, they're going to think, oh my gosh, this is a cancer. Is it a cancerous tumor? 
so typically they aren't cancerous, but they can be a small segment of them can be something we call a leiomyosarcoma. That's different. Okay. Most fibroids are benign or non-cancerous. But if you have fibroids that are all of a sudden expanding in size, so your uterus was, say, we measure it typically based on a pregnancy, we'll say 12-week size, like a 12-week size pregnancy. That's how we kind of categorize fibroids. So if your uterus grows really rapidly over a few months, then that's something that you want to get checked out. Because when we see leiomyosarcomas, which are like the cancerous form of a fibroid, it's usually women who've had a sudden increase in the size of the fiber. So if you see that or you notice that, you want to get that checked out for sure. But mo in most instances, fibroids are benign or non-cancerous, but they just can cause no symptoms. Some women have no symptoms, right? Lots of women will walk around with fibroids. They have no clue they have them because they're not having symptoms at all. So we call those asymptomatic fibroids, and we don't even typically treat those unless they're causing an issue. We treat them based on symptoms. Some women will have heavy bleeding. That's probably the, the biggest concern that women will voice when they have fibroids is heavy cycles. And I'm talking periods that last 10, 14 days. So they have more bleeding in a month than they do no bleeding. So they can have very heavy periods, you know, bleeding for 10, 14 days. Some women will go through one or two boxes of pads or tampons in a five or six day period, which is not normal. So lots of women with fibroids will complain of really heavy periods. They can't go to work because the periods are so heavy. They soil their clothes because the periods are heavy. Lots of them with those types of periods, they don't even want to go outside during their period because they're afraid that they'll have an accident out in public. So they stay home or they don't go to school because of the, the, the cycles. So that's another symptom or what we see typically with women who have fibroids when they have symptoms. Another one is pressure symptoms. So some women will have pressure symptoms related to the size of the fibroids. So the fibroids are like a pregnant uterus, if you think of it that way, right? It's like a tumors that are like babies that are in, in, the, in the uterus and it sits on the bladder so they can have urinary frequency where they're going to the restroom a lot. Some can have constipation depending on the location of the fibroids. So we call those pressure symptoms, urinary frequency or constipation. Pressure symptoms and bleeding are the two typical you know, things you see with fibroids. Fibroids typically don't cause pain unless they're degenerating, shrinking. Okay. So when fibroids degenerate, they can cause pain. So a lot of times women will come in and oh, my fibroids is causing pain. Fibroids typically don't cause pain unless they're shrinking or degenerating. So a young woman who's having pain, probably not due to fibroids. Endometriosis is more common. Are there other things that are more common in, in that younger age woman stage of life when, when it comes to painful periods? Just bread and butter dysmenorrhea, as we call it in GYN, or, you know, that hormonally mediated, prostaglandin-mediated pain. If you think of it kind of to be an inflammatory kind of thing, which is why medications like NSAIDs, we call those non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, tend to work well for that type of pain. What are the common NSAIDs that people would know? So things like Advil or Motrin, Naproxen, those are some common names. They tend to work better than acetaminophen or Tylenol alone because they not only help with the pain, they cut down on the inflammation associated with dysmenorrhea. So that is the most common cause for pain during periods is that dysmenorrhea, the hormonally mediated kind of pain. We've talked a bit about periods starting in the girls and young women, and then the cycle as it changes as we get older, sometimes associated with pain or not. You know, I, I want to talk just a little bit about normal cycles and actually how the fact that we don't really talk about periods at all in quote unquote polite society. What is the deal with that? I feel like it's becoming talked about a lot more now, 
but it's been something where you didn't want someone to know that you're on your period or you discreetly ask, you know, a, a fellow person in the bathroom about that. What is it about talking about periods that holds us back from those conversations? Yeah, so interestingly, and, you know, I've reviewed some things and thought processes around this, you know, it's kind of women's social conditioning, the way we've been trained through the years to have some shame associated with periods, even though it's something that women will have, you're going to have a period usually every month. So it's normal. It's something that's normal, but we haven't really normalized it in our society. So lots of women have shame around periods, especially if your periods are heavy, even though it's something that we have every month. So I'm happy to see that there's much more of a conversation around menstrual cycles because it affects women every month. And when women have really painful periods or really heavy bleeding, that can cause issues for them. They can't go to school. They can't go to work. In other countries, women have shortages of supply of, of menstrual products. So it is something that we definitely need to talk about. It's a normal process, and there should be no shame associated with it. And the more we have conversations about it, the more we normalize it, and the more women feel comfortable talking about it, you know, be it at school or in the workplace. And removing that stigma, I think, associated with both having a period and then talking about our periods. So one of the things that I've seen or read about is that you can change when you have your period. So some people are like, oh, that is just ridiculous. Don't even, you know, get me started. It's not up to you. And then other people are like, of course you can change when you have your period. I've done it before for these events. So where does the truth lie there, Trishan? So I absolutely love that question because we use hormones to change periods daily. So we, we call most hormonal medications birth control, right? But we don't just use it for birth control. We use it for a host of reasons, you know, be it making periods lighter or helping with pain. But you can actually change when you have your period. With the, with the help of hormones, with the help of these with the hormones. Help, exactly. With the help of hormones, things that most people will refer to as birth control. So, you know, we can use IUDs or intrauterine devices. These are progesterone releasing intrauterine devices, and there are different ones on the market. But these are devices that go into the uterus and they last for eight years now. And they, over time, thin the lining of the uterus so much that bleeding is very minimal. Some women will have no periods at all. We call that amenorrhea. And some women will have periods. They're just much lighter. So we oftentimes use those devices to help with heavy bleeding. And they can also help with the pain, that dysmenorrhea associated with the period. So those are really great devices. They can also act as contraception if you want long-term contraception. And it's a reversible contraception. I absolutely love intrauterine devices, especially progestin-releasing intrauterine devices. I think it gives women lots of control of periods. So that's one way you can do it. You can also control your period using oral contraception, so birth control pills. And the way you do that, of course, you want to talk to your OBGYN so there's no mistakes in doing it. Yeah, this is, this is not oh. advice, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Not, not to be confused with medical advice. Actually, get that from your exactly. doctor. Yes. Exactly. But, but most pills are usually three rows of active pill, or those are pills that actually have hormone. And then there's a week or a row of inactive pills. So when you're taking that inactive pill, that's when you get your period, so to say. So in order to skip a period or to have a longer interval between periods, you would simply skip that row of inactive pills and just keep taking the pills that have hormones. So that's the way you do it with birth control pills. You can also do it with the patch or the ring. You just want to keep the hormone there. 
And oftentimes I'll have a lot of women say, well, is that safe to not have a period? And I oftentimes have to explain, as long as you're on some type of hormonal contraception, and that's the reason why you're not having a period, that can be normal. Now, if you're not having a period from month to month and you're not on anything, that's not normal. So you want to be evaluated if you're skipping and not having periods for months and months and months. But if you have a Mirena IUD and you don't have a period, that's totally normal because that is one of the beautiful side effects of the Mirena IUD or a, a progestin-releasing IUD, as well as using birth control pills continuously or using your patch continuously or your ring continuously. So I love that. I love that. So I know that we've talked about kind of the beginning and painful periods. There's this whole big period in between where you're having your period. There's a period of having periods monthly, let's say age 20 to 50. And hopefully things are, are going well around fertility and pregnancy, childbirth. And then you get to a place where you don't have your period anymore, i.e. menopause. So someone said recently, this is kind of like adolescence or first period in reverse. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. That perimenopausal period is a huge time period for women. And symptoms can start as early as 40, as the age of 40. The average age of menopause is about 51 or so, but women can start to have symptoms 10 years prior to that. What if they have symptoms before 40? Is it still a menopause? So if you have symptoms before 40 and you're actually diagnosed with menopause before 40, we call that premature ovarian failure. That's a little early. But if you're starting to have like hot flashes or your periods are becoming irregular or much lighter than they had been and you're under 40, you want to run to your OBGYN okay. because you want to be evaluated to be sure that you're not undergoing or experiencing premature ovarian failure because that can affect fertility, especially if you hadn't, hadn't had children. So I've seen women who might wait or think that it's normal to kind of skip and not have periods or the periods becoming lighter and they're having hot flashes and they think it's normal and it'll become fine again. And then in actuality, they come in and they're in premature ovarian failure and now their fertility is being affected. So it's, if you're having those symptoms, you definitely want to be evaluated if you're under the age of 40. And if you're not, let's say you're over 40, what symptoms, you alluded to a couple of those already, kind of irregular or light periods, hot flashes, what else are women experiencing? So there's a host of things that happen <laughs> during that menopausal transition period that women will experience. So you've listed the hot flashes, night sweats. So you might wake up and your sheets or your t-shirt is wet, you know, and I'm an OBGYN and it's funny because <laughs> I didn't realize I was having hot flashes <laughs> until I was in the basement, which is usually very cool. And I just began to get really hot. And so I'm taking things off, taking my sweatshirt off. And I'm like, why am I so hot? And then it struck me. Oh, that's a hot flash, right? You know? <laughs> do I have so, a fever? No, I do not have right. a fever. It's a hot flash. Exactly. Am I sick? Or what, what's this? This is a hot flash. So they can present in different ways. A lot of women will say it's like heat that moves from the bottom of their body all the way up to the top. Some women don't really have hot flashes during the day. They have it, you know, more night sweats where they're waking up at night because they're wet or they're sweating. Other things that you can experience in that menopausal transition, things like insomnia, a lot of women can't really sleep or they may go to sleep and then in two or three hours they're up <laughs> and they can't quite get back to sleep. So it's not uncommon to have insomnia during that menopausal transition. You may have some mood changes or some mood symptomatology around that time period as well. So those are really some big things. Vaginal dryness is another thing. So you may have some issues with intercourse or sexual activity because of the vaginal dryness. Some women will have urinary frequency where they're going to the restroom a lot because of, you know, the lack of estrogen in the vagina. And as a result, they go frequently. So there's so many things that happen during that menopausal transition. 
estrogen is so important and it really supports us in most things that we do, even in terms of cardiovascular health, estrogen affects us in that way as well. So bone health, all of those things, it, the, the, the menopausal transition period, estrogen is really providing us so much. And so when we start to lose estrogen, we really feel it as women. So in both kind of the stages at the beginning of having periods and the end of having periods, you referenced mental health. And there is such an overlap between menstrual health and mental health. They're connected and one can affect the other, of course. Those fluctuations with irritability or mood changes. And then again, you add the stigma or the comments that, that women and girls have faced. You know, you must be on your period or are, are you premenstrual? So what are some of those areas of overlap that we know exist between mental health and menstrual health? That's a very interesting question because there are many women who will have an exacerbation of their mood symptoms during their periods or during their menstrual cycles. So, so you mean their anxiety or depression, for instance, might be worse during their period? Exactly. And women who have a baseline predisposition for mood disorders, or they may have diagnosed mood disorders, might notice an exacerbation of those symptoms during the cycle. So there's kind of two ways that we think of this. We think of it as people know what PMS is. People have heard of that premenstrual syndrome, right? And that's kind of the, the change in the mood that you can have related to these fluctuation in hormones during your, your period. But then there's something that's a little bit more severe than just PMS, and we call that PMDD, or premenstrual dysphoric disorder, where women can be really out of sorts during their period. And there's lots of ways to treat that. You can treat it continuously. You can treat it just during a certain part of the menstrual cycle. We call that the luteal phase. But you can really have an exacerbation of mood symptomatology. I, I can't tell you how many times women come in and they will be okay, you know, when not on their period. But when they're on their period, they express feelings of, I just don't know why I felt really depressed and I cried and I didn't know why I was crying, but I cried and I just felt, I had one patient tell me she felt suicidal, but she had insight to it. You know, I have insight to this and I know this is not what I feel, but I don't know why I'm feeling this. And it was on a period. So it is important because periods can impact women's mental health if they don't have a, a history of any type of, you know, anxiety, depression. And it can definitely impact them if you have a, a predisposition or a diagnosable history of anxiety or depression. And there are treatments for it. So I always, again, tell women to seek help. Don't be afraid to, you know, call and reach out to your, to your OBGYN because we know that this is something. This is real. This is not in your head. You know, we validate that this is something. And there are viable treatment options for things like PMDD and PMS if those symptoms are severe. One of the things that I've been really encouraged about is the fact that we are talking about it more. We're also talking about women's health in the workplace. And again, it's during our menstruating years, for the most part, that we are going to work. We're going to work every day and we're having periods every month and sometimes a lot of symptoms associated with it. You know, even when you think about heavy periods and anemia or, you know, the fatigue that has to be addressed or all these other complications. And so I also think that there's a big overlap or intersection between menstrual health and business health. And so I want to pivot just a little bit to talk about that aspect. How is it that businesses can support women's menstrual health in the workplace, especially when we think about employee productivity and even satisfaction and engagement? What would you recommend that businesses start thinking about? Yeah, that's a great question. Lots of 
times women, you know, you may have a, a woman in your workplace that you notice monthly needs to be off of work. And, you know, because of that shame and that stigma and social conditioning that we talked about before, a lot of women don't want to tell their employer or their boss, hey, I can't come into work today because my period is really bad today. I don't feel good. But it's relevant. Women are having really bad periods, bad pain, heavy bleeding. They can't come to work. So you might see absenteeism and you might not know quite why this is the case. So ways in which employers can support women in this way is to really be an advocate and to let the workforce know, including supervisors and managers, that, hey, this is something that we know can be an issue for women, and we want our women workers to know that we support them in this. So conversations around menstrual health, conversations around common things that can affect women in terms of menstrual health, and just starting the conversation or opening the conversation in your work environment can basically give the signal to everyone there that, hey, it's okay for me to go to my boss because we had this conversation. We had a training program about this. And I can say, hey, you know what? This is what's going on with me. And, you know, I may need to take a day or two off from work because my periods are so horrible or so bad. So normalizing and having a conversation and signaling to your women workers that it's okay to have these types of conversations can be one thing that employer groups can do. I love that. And I also think the whole education part is so important. There are so many myths disinformation, beliefs, and some people just didn't have any education about periods, about women and periods. And then to your point, how that extends into how women show up in the workplace with their periods as well. So I think that it could be so incredibly supportive to be able to have that education. And really, as I think about the work that you've done in DEI and having an inclusive work environment, the more we know, the more we understand, the more people feel like they get me here. I get it. And this is a place I want to work because they, they see me as a whole person, which means as a woman, as a woman who has periods. Absolutely. And I think that in most places, most workplaces, everyone would want to support this, but because we don't have conversations about it or people just don't know, right? They don't know how best to support women in the workplace when they're having a really heavy cycle or painful period. What am I supposed to do with that, right? So if you give people tools, I think in most instances, you will find that most people are receptive and will probably be happy to have some guidance in this arena, right? So I think that the conversation is probably the most important thing that you can have in normalizing this kind of conversation in the workplace. And having that conversation will reduce the stigma about talking about it. It creates that psychological safety around the conversation as well. Are there things that companies can do to collaborate with healthcare providers that provide menstrual health services or programs? Yes, absolutely. You know, in some other countries, in the UK, for instance, there's something called menstrual leave, right? And so menstrual leave is a great something that employers could add as a benefit or as something that they have for their workers, where women can take a day or two or three off a month or they have an option to telework if that's an opportunity at your workplace. And they don't have to explain why. So having a really robust menstrual leave policy is something that most workplace environments can, can implement and could be really useful because many women will have a couple days where they just really are having a problem, <laughs> but the other days they can be totally productive. So you don't want to lose great workers because there are a couple days in a month that they need just support to function because they're on their menstrual cycle. So I think really rigorous, robust menstrual leave policy can be something that employer groups do. 
allowing telework options during those times because, you know, those women that have really heavy cycles, they don't want to come into the office because if you have an accident, you know, that's a whole different production, right? It's kind of embarrassing. It's, you know, something that you don't want to have to explain to everyone at work. But if you could stay home and kind of accomplish your job, so and, and if you could take care of the needs that you have there at your, at your home on those days, then that can be helpful too. And, you know, women can continue to work. And, you know, we know that women are working much more than they did 50 years ago. So women are supporting families nowadays. And so when we take care of women, we are actually taking care of whole families, not just the woman, because women are supporting families. Yeah, such a good point. I agree with that. I love that. So a lot of companies also are working in the community space or corporate social responsibility. And are there any places where that actually can play out around menstrual health as well? I think about companies that work in communities, that that's part of their mission, as it were, that they have investments into communities, or they say we are, you know, this is important when it comes to social responsibility. They might have their pride month. They, you know, they talk about equity, inclusion, and diversity, and they incorporate that into not only how they do things at work, but how they show up in the community to, to support different campaigns or directives or collaborations. Do you have any ideas about what that looks like or could look like for companies? That's an interesting question. And I think where companies can kind of be community driven with regards to menses and the menstrual cycle is with regards to menstrual poverty. Menstrual poverty. What does that mean, Trishan? Let's talk about that. So there are many women who can't afford menstrual products. They can't afford tampons. They can't afford period panties. They can't afford pads. And so that is a big deal, right? Because we know that most women will have a period once a month if everything is working as it should. And so companies can really be a source to kind of end period poverty by supporting initiatives to provide or ensure that women, not only in our United States, but other parts of the world have access to menstrual products during their cycle. So in other countries, young girls won't go to school because they're on their period and they don't have access to period products. Some women can't be a part of their societies because they're on their period and they don't have access to menstrual products. And so hygiene is a huge thing for women, especially when you're on your menses. And if you are so impoverished that you don't have the ability to access these things, that can be a huge thing. And I think companies can really make a community global impact through menstrual poverty and kind of supporting initiatives to end menstrual poverty. I love that. And, and even just thinking of products that appear in restrooms now, right? used to be you had to you had to have coins with you but now it's really they're free for everybody absolutely they're not only in women's restrooms but they're in family restrooms in men's restrooms because of trans men who are having periods as well and then as you talk about period poverty the opportunity maybe to partner with women's shelters or with schools that have difficulty and making those products available I think would be so powerful to talk about support for half the population actually in that space as well. And I think even policy-wise, there's things that we can think about to challenge, for instance, the uh, tax on products sometimes. These are essential products, and yet you go to the grocery store and you're going to pay a tax on tampons and pads. And why is that? And who's paying that tax? It's women who are, again, being taxed in a bigger way. And so being able to maybe even address that from a policy standpoint, I think could be important, an important role for employers as they have that influence and connections a lot of times around that. Trishan, this has been a great conversation. 
I've learned a lot. Is there anything that you wish that I would have asked you around menstrual health that I haven't? The advice that I'd want to give to women is self-care because we're so busy oftentimes taking care of everyone around us that we oftentimes will neglect our own needs, even if it's these heavy cycles that we're having every month. Getting into your OBGYN to talk about that, you know, suffering painful periods from month to month just because this is what we do, right? There is help, you know, or feeling very moody or having, you know, suicidal ideation or severe depression monthly because of your period when there's treatment for these things. But we just have to make space and time for ourselves to care for self. And I think that's really important in this conversation is just to remind women about self-care so that we can be there to support our families and companies and all the things that important things that women do in the world. So self-care, I think, is important. And it's, it's a good reminder for women to take care of self because we tend to take care of everyone else. So, Trishan, you mentioned self-care as your advice for women. I love that piece of advice. And I think that it's a vague term. And so as we think about women, women's health, menstrual health, what are the specific things around self-care that actually make a difference? So I think in general, self-care is really just taking time to take care of you. And so, you know, with regards to menstrual health and just kind of the things that we endure from month to month, taking time to make appointments, regularly scheduled appointments with your primary care provider you know, to make sure your blood pressure is as it should be, to make sure your cholesterol is, is where it should be, to make sure that you're not a pre-diabetic. You want to check in at least yearly with your primary care doctor, with whoever your primary OBGYN is, so that you can make sure you get your preventive screenings done. So your pap smears to prevent cervix cancer, you know, so you can get your mammograms done to prevent breast cancer. You know, you want to have that done every one to two years. Pap smears, the, the screening guidelines have changed a bit, but you want to check in with your OBGYN so that you can know when you need your pap smear. Colon cancer screening. The recommendation is just made that everybody be screened for colon cancer at the age of 45. Right. We're seeing so, it younger than ever. And so getting that done. And I will tell you, that is the screening and prevention test that is always lagging when we compare to those cervical cancer and breast cancer screenings. So I just want to reiterate that. Get your colon cancer screening done, please. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, just general wellness, at least once a year, a lot of women or and men as well will schedule around their birthdays just as a reminder. So you want it doesn't have to be your birthday month if you don't want to celebrate that <laughs> way. You want to celebrate it another way, you know. But just pick a month that you're gonna say I'm gonna schedule all of my appointments. I'm gonna have my mammogram done. I'm gonna see my primary care doctor. I'm gonna see my OBGYN so that you can get your preventive screenings done so that you can be evaluated because you know women in addition to menstrual health we're affected by other things like heart disease. Right, heart disease is the number one killer of women. So you want to make sure your blood pressure looks okay. You want to make sure your diet's on par and you're doing what you should do in that regard. So I think that's really important. That you can get help to quit smoking if that's one of your risk factors for heart disease. Again, it's something, it's this bad habit, this addiction that starts a lot of times early in life and it catches up to us, right? In our later years around menopause. So all of those things start adding up together when it comes to affecting our health and being places where self-care can intervene and can still really make a difference. It does matter if you quit smoking when you're 60. It does matter if you catch this earlier rather than later. So there's still a lot that can be done and needs that intervention, which means you got to take care of yourself and make your appointments. 
Absolutely. The, the smoking, I mean, I want to expound on that just a little bit because that is the one thing that if you're, you're a smoker, the one thing that you can do, stop smoking, that will totally change most of your healthcare outcomes. I mean, we see women who smoke have difficulties with infertility. So, you know, before we refer you for infertility management or we do anything like that, we want you to stop smoking. With regards to heart disease, smoking, stopping smoking at any point, even if you feel you're too old to do it, there is a positive effect. So I can't overemphasize that. I, I love that you brought that up because smoking can change all types of, if you stop smoking, it can change so many health outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the time. I have really learned from this and enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for the work that you do, Trishan. I think that you are fabulous. I think that you are a fabulous physician and just a fabulous human being. So really appreciate you. Thanks to my guests for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Health Fuse podcast with Deb Friesen, MD. I hope you'll share this episode with colleagues, friends, and family members who are interested in diving deeper into meaningful and relevant health and wellness topics. I look forward to the next conversation and will share another episode of Health Views with you soon. Take good care. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. The discussion reflects the opinions of the speakers and is not intended to represent Kaiser Permanente policy. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the listener's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their medical professionals. Mm -hmm.